0: Welcome to Black Diplomats, a podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we're going to break down the role of U.S. diplomacy with U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass, who has represented California's 37th congressional district since 2011. Bass also serves as chair of the United States House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa Global Health, Global Human Rights and International Organizations, and the United States House Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism and Homeland Security. Before her election to Congress, Bass represented the 47th District in the California State Assembly, during which she became the first African-American woman in the United States to serve as Speaker of a state legislative body. Congresswoman Bass, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, I wanted to do a mental health check with you. So there's just so much going <laughs> on. We we're, Seriously, we, we're just, we had a literal insurrection attempt. White supremacy is just going mad and Donald Trump, just turned our country from, you know, as the old folks say, damn it, to hell, and you all are just left to deal with it. So, uh, you know, I just want to ask you, how how are you managing this?
1: Well, I'm fine. I mean, I think it's always important to put things in their greater historical context. And, um, and you know, I'm glad that it's finally exposed that there are white supremacists in police departments and in the military something that, you know, many of us have been crying about for generations and weren't believed. Uh, I'm also glad that it was exposed that, you know, the extent of the white supremacist extremist element involved in in Trump supporters, which, uh, you know, that uh, 56 percent of Trump supporters say that it wasn't Trump that, I mean, it wasn't uh, Trump supporters that were there. They were Antifa and Black Lives Matter. I guess they were black people in whiteface. I mean, (laughs) if you're gonna, (laughs) but I think the American people are clear. And, um, you know, it it was uh, very terrifying for many of my colleagues what happened. Um, But, you know, I'm glad that it was exposed and I think over time we'll learn more And I won't be surprised at all to know that some of my colleagues were complicit. Um, I don't believe that they were trying to kidnap the speaker or kidnap Pence, but I think they didn't realize that some of the people that they were associating with uh, might have associated with other people um, who believed that way. And, you know, we spent four years with the white supremacists in the White House And so why are we surprised that an element of the population became radicalized? You know, that term radicalized was just used for people associated with uh, backgrounds from the Middle East. Um,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's very clear that it's homegrown as well. I also think that, that now, you know, the, the, the FBI can't ignore that the number one danger in our country are not terrorists from the Middle East but terrorists from right here at home. And that uh, finally, hopefully they will deal with it. But what I'm really worried about is, is that they keep trying to lump black people into the mix of being domestic terrorism. And if I can accomplish anything over the next few years, it's gonna to be to get us removed from that category because I do not believe that there are black Extremist, violent, terrorist organizations that exist in our country.
0: Absolutely, and we're we're going to uh, jump into that. Um, one of the things I definitely want to discuss with you is this: uh, your your efforts to redefine the relationship with the continent of of Africa. And we know that the former uh, occupant of the White House referred to many countries on that con- on that continent as a shithole countries. And also, there is a, um, I don't think that even with our American media, uh, we adequately engage the country beyond conflict or from aid, you know, giving the continent something as if it doesn't have anything to offer us. Even during presidential elections, during the foreign policy debates when we have them. Africa almost never comes up. I'm really curious about what is your vision about um, engaging the continent during during this administration and during this term?
1: Oh, well, well, first of all, you know, it's just been such a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to remember w- what a president is like. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because we were assaulted every day for four years. Uh, with very bizarre behavior, and now we're back to oh, calm um and so i'm I'm excited that the engagement with the continent of Africa is going to be very positive uh in this administration, and you referred to um trump's uh calling the African countries as whole countries. You should know that uh the African Union has an office in washington d c and all fifty plus ambassadors meet there every month. And after he made those comments, I asked to address all of them. And I went over there and I apologized on your behalf, on the behalf of the American people and said, that is not the way we do the continent of Africa.
0: I'm curious, what did they say to you? I'm really curious, like, what was that meeting like?
1: <laughs> it was kind of funny because um, I basically said that, you know, we um, unfortunately, the uh, some of the American people elected a racist for the president, and that um, his racism, you know, began the moment he came down the escalator, uh, disparaging uh, Mexicans. <laughs> and he's had his day with mm-hmm. each one of us, whether they were black folks, Asians, Latinx, or, or Native Americans, and that um, his attack on Africa was consistent with how he views <laughs> black people in the United States. And they looked at me and they kind of laughed, like, is she really saying that about the president of the United States? And I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> I said, and the thing is, is that we have some weaknesses in our democracy, but I can stand up here and say this. And, I, and I'm going to say it loud. <laughs> and uh, I think they appreciated it. Um, But I do think that they were surprised that I would be so direct.
0: Congresswoman, you were talking about um, your engagement with the continent of Africa. I'm really interested in uh, what your plans are.
1: Well, uh, first of all, uh, I feel that historically uh, we have viewed Africa just like we view inner city America. You know, hapless, hopeless, helpless. uh, We have to do for the continent and you guys are always fighting. Uh, Never willing to look at the root causes of why there are conflicts in Africa. And so my number one priority from the moment I was sworn in in my first term has been to change how we view the continent of Africa. And we need to look at Africa the same way we look at Asia or Latin America, which is as partners, as full partners. And I would like to see us change the way we do foreign aid. I think the Obama administration had it right. And I believe the Biden administration will go back to shifting the paradigm and I'll give you two examples. How is it that we've been providing foreign aid for decades and decades and two thirds of the continent doesn't have electricity? You know, they've just passed a major free trade agreement with the continent, you know, with each other, but they have difficulty because they don't have basic infrastructure like roads. And so to me, I think we need to help address those issues. And so President Obama did have an initiative to uh, address that was called electrify Africa, and that was to engage in public-private partnerships to build up the the electrical uh, infrastructure on the continent. Uh, feed the future. Do you realize that we export food to Africa? Why would we send food to Africa?
0: I didn't know that. What type of food are we sending? Why? 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 That's that's why are we doing that?
1: Well, when there is a famine or something like that, we'll send you know, uh, food from the American people. But why would we send food to Ethiopia when we could send money to Ethiopia to buy food from Kenya? I mean, you can imagine if you were a rice farmer in Ethiopia or in Kenya, and uh, you were getting ready to take your crop to market only to see the Americans come come around and deliver free rice. And then you've just destroyed my crop and my income for a whole year. And so uh, what, what happened under the Obama administration and the Feed the Future program, and it continued. Uh, I think Trump didn't care enough about Africa to find it, to eliminate it. So both of those programs continued on. And then of course, we put those programs into law. So they were uh, uh, continued. And so instead of exporting food, we've exported our science, our technology, so that the farmers could increase the amount that they were growing and that they could move from subsistence farmers to farmers that could take food to market. Uh, So those are just a couple of examples. The Young African Leaders Program, which we just passed a piece of legislation out of committee yesterday to make it law. So in other words, there were initiatives that uh, began under the Obama administration. And what we've tried to do over the last few years is take those initiatives and actually put them into law.
0: You know, one thing I'm uh, country I'm particularly interested in is Nigeria. And, you know, this is, um, you know, it's the largest, the largest country, you know, on the continent. And I never hear about trade business opportunities, investing in, you know, tech sector or whatever the case may be. Do you think that there are opportunities to invest in, you know, in different countries throughout the continent?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, my focus is on trade and business development. Again, to shift the conversation away from conflict and foreign aid. Obviously, I have to deal with that too, but that's not the center of of the work that I do. So uh, Nigeria has a vibrant tech sector. And one of the last times I was there, it was fascinating because we had a round table with tech leaders. And a number of them, one, were educated in the United States or had worked in tech in the United States and then went home and created their own businesses. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for that. And, and one of my big areas of interest is actually connecting African American businesses with African businesses. But, but, but there's a challenge that there's a real financial challenge to that. And so I actually now want to kind of shift to the diaspora because I think that the Nigerian or other uh, diaspora from other countries could be a bridge to African-American businesses here. Even though we're all of the same people, the cultures are different. And so, you know, in some of the countries, it's a a lot of it is related and you need to go over and have relations, develop relations with people, right? But not many of our businesses have the time or the money to go spend six months building relationships. But if you work with a Nigerian-American who already has those relationships, maybe that can provide an intermediary. And so looking at it that way, because um, just like the diaspora or the uh, populations here, you know, Irish-Americans, Italian-Americans, I mean, most uh, people maintain relationships with their home countries, because we don't know who our home countries are. <laughs> we we, you know, hopefully there's the ability to do that through the diaspora.
0: I'm really burning to ask you about the bill that you introduced called Represent America Abroad Act. And I, I say this because I have so many friends of mine who have entered into the U.S. State Department. Um, and I know Jelena Porter, who's the deputy uh press secretary over there and i know there are a few other folks that are working throughout the administration and this is very dear to my heart because i was a peace corps volunteer i'm a Fulbright. i'm currently in ukraine right now in those relationships oh. as you're discussing you know i'm yeah I'm, I'm in ukraine right now and so i uh you're in the ukraine a, right now <laughs> i in i'm in kiev yeah and so i have a master's degree in russian east european eurasian studies which was paid for by a state department grant well you know um yeah, yeah, it was paid for by a State Department grants. So the so the U.S. government via the State Department has paid for my um, both of my master's degrees through Russian language training. So I I'm interested in how you your interest in in this legislation to increase diversity within the State Department.
1: Well, how could I not be interested in it? I mean, you know, when I go to Africa. It is very rare that I see somebody that looks like me. Very rare.
0: Isn't that uh, odd to go there, a a continent full of black people and you don't see us in the the ranks?
1: Well, that's because we're not there, which means our our state department overseas, our embassies do not represent America. That's the reason we call the bill that. And so the point is, how do we diversify on every level? And, um, you know, whenever you talk about diversity, number one, people, I've never had the discussion come up where people say, oh, this is great. Welcome. Come aboard. The minute you say diversity, they say you're trying to take something from me. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody wants to focus on entry level and outreach and recruitment and all of that is fine. But as you well know, it takes many years to move up the ranks through the State Department. Yeah, And so basically, you're telling me, we'll let you in the door, but it's going to be another 15 years before we diversify. So the point of the bill is, how do we diversify on every level? So this is allowing, and you actually are a perfect example of the type of person that we would want to recruit, but not at the entry level. With all of your worlds of experience, why would you come in at the entry level? You should come in at the mid-level or the top. How about we expand the pie? Novel concept. It's not always taking from someone. I mean, I don't believe it ever is. It's adding to when you talk about diversity.
0: Do people actually tell you that, that they feel like it's a threat to their own security? Do you actually have those conversations with folks and they tell you that?
1: Yes, yes. Usually the language is a little softer, but that's what it means. Absolutely.
0: Okay, yeah. (laughs) it's just amazing that people because when you're in and you know this um we know this together that when you're in this space it's presumed that you're supposed to be particularly cultured and even more culturally alert and accepting because that's the genesis of this job this is the genesis of this work
1: well but it hasn't been the history
0: yeah okay (laughs) yeah
1: i mean come on I mean, when you look at when you look at Africa, you know, we have a long history of being on the wrong side. Yeah. No, that's not true necessarily in recent history. Well, no, actually, I have to say we've been on both sides in recent history. True. But I mean, come on, through all of the independent struggles, we were on the wrong side. We supported the colonial powers. Oh, yeah. we supported apartheid. So so, you know, our State Department has a mixed history. So the point is, is to look for people exactly like you and say and bring you in on the mid-level. Now, two things are said. One, you're taking something from me. And two, you're bringing in people who aren't qualified. Those are the two things that are always said about the vertices. Mm-hmm. No matter, and that, that's what's been said you know, for decades. And so the point is somebody like you is extremely qualified. And uh, to bring you in on the mid level and expand the pie, so people are not displaced, if that's what they perceive. I mean, at this point in time, so many people left the State Department, so many people ran from the State Department under the Trump administration, that this is the perfect opportunity to diversify.
0: Absolutely. So, what do? You, so, ideally for you, you know, are you looking at, you know, a goal of percentages or a goal like for you for this act? you know, you know, passing it into law and for it to be implemented. What is your vision? Yet, like the end game per se. I mean, it will be a continuation, but ideally after you well, say 10 years from now, what would you what would your vision for this be? How would it manifest?
1: Well, the vision would be that the State Department would represent America. So mm-hmm. whatever population is 10 years from now, that's where it should be.
0: What are your thoughts about Beijing's growing influence on the continent?
1: Well, you know, um, I know that it is problematic in so many different ways, but in my opinion, in our country, we use it as an excuse. I mean, what do we want to tell the African countries to do? Don't take that $3 billion initiative to rebuild the roads in your country. The African countries would much rather deal with us, but where are we? So if we're not there, I just don't understand the point of of talking about China, uh, because again, what position are what are you telling the African countries to do? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's nothing. I I totally understand that be- and and I and I share that sentiment. And another th- and I want to be mindful of how I discuss this. Um there are a rising number of attacks that's taking place against um Asian Americans here in the United States and a lot of people bring up, you know, unfairly stereotyped the country of China. You know, Trump did it during his four years, you know, during his presidency, you know, with the slur, using the slur, the China flu. Right. And so I want to be clear that we're not talking about it in that level. But I am curious as far as a, you know, America also showing itself um, on the continent. But you're correct. We're not showing up, and so we're not even giving them an opportunity. We're not giving those countries an opportunity to to, to really negotiate with us. So that's an important point. Yeah.
1: We could spend the entire program talking about China and Africa, talking about, you know, labor, the quality of the work, the debt, Mm -hmm. you know, the terrible deals that are made. I'm not denying any of that. I think all of that is extremely important. But my response is, what do you expect the African countries to do? What I would like to see happen is for the United States and the EU to step up, especially the former colonial powers. Now, you know, last year um, when I was chairing the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, we were working on policing legislation, which we're working on again uh, this year. But um, last summer, I had the all twenty all all of the ambassadors that are located here in Washington, DC to the EU, I mean from the EU to the United States, all of the EU ambassadors, uh, we did a, a a meeting with them for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. The following week we did a meeting with the EU Parliament because the EU is going through its own racial reckoning, mm. recognizing that they have the same policing issues, that we have in the United States. I won't say the same, I think the United States policing issues are worse, frankly. In,
0: in what way, tell me, I'm curious in, in your insight, in what ways do you think there our issues are worse than those in Europe?
1: Well, I think our history with uh, police abuse toward black people <laughs> have been in place since the period of enslavement. Uh, before there were people, Before there were black people in Europe, we, I mean, policing, the, the right, right. policing profession was started to capture enslaved people that had escaped for freedom. What has happened, though, in recent history, I would say over the last 30 years, is that police unions have gone from state to state, essentially putting into law their impunity from anything. It doesn't matter if they kill you on videotape or they have their knee on your neck for nine minutes for the whole whole world to watch police officers are never charged and that is different than exists in Europe and the black populations are new in Europe new meaning over the last 30 years they haven't been there 200 years so that's, that's what what makes it different but the reason why I raised it is because the European Union is now looking at their own race issues I mean take the country of Belgium for example I mean, what happened in, in the Congo? Um, and so they're kind of going through their own reckoning. And so maybe it's time the U.S. and the EU come together to say the African continent has to have electricity, has to have roads, has to have education. And we're going to take international responsibility to make sure that happens.
0: I'm pretty sure the Congolese are saying run, run us our money. Well, <laughs>
1: well, as opposed to saying, let's extract all the minerals. yes, And then let's, let's, not tell let's not tell anybody why they're able to operate their cell phones. You know, I mean, uh, all of the advantages that we have because we extract the natural resources from the African continent, you know, we need to do something about that on a worldwide basis. And, and if we don't care anything about the African people, you, you know, you don't want them rolling up in boats on your shore. So if you don't want them coming, address the root causes of why they're there.
0: You know, another question I have for you, Congresswoman, because you're in the room, is when you talk, like, you're. we're talking about this and we get it, but when you're talking to those white Europeans, you know, basically, hey, this is what you need to do. I mean, because you're basically talking about reparations. What is their response to you?
1: Well, um... It was last year. It was a couple of conversations, and they were very open to hearing what we had to say. But I will tell you, just like in the United States, everybody was very open to hearing about policing last year. This year, people don't want to hear about it, because there haven't been that many Black people murdered on video. I mean, we need a couple more George Floyd examples. (laughs) <laughs> and we need to have a hundred thousand people out in the street to be reminded that this is an issue that hasn't gone away.
0: You said that very matter of fact. Wow. So you know, speaking of that, you know, the George Floyd Act. Do you what? What? What are the chances of it passing in this? Um, in, in, you know, during in the next year or two?
1: It has to. It'll pass next week out of the House of Representatives. We introduced it. It'll be voted on next week. And, um, and then we go to work to try to reach a compromise in the Senate.
0: Technically, the Democrats have a majority. What's the problem? I mean, we know the problem, but from your perspective, since you're on, what's the problem?
1: Well, the problem is in the Senate, you need a super majority. A majority is not enough. So we have 51 when you include Vice President Harris to break a tie. So right now the Senate is 100 senators. And it's 50-50, 50 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Mm -hmm. But because we have a Democratic uh, White House, the vice president can break a tie. So let's just say it's 51. Mm -hmm. In order to pass any legislation, you need 60 votes. And that's the reason. So having the majority is not enough. Now, the House is different. We have a very small majority over here, but all we need is a majority in the House.
0: In your role at, you know, in the House, do you spend time speaking with people in the Senate about this, trying to corral them around it?
1: Yes, 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 we do. And over in the Senate, our lead is, is Senator um, uh, Cory Booker and Senator Tim Scott. Uh, two of the three African-Americans in the Senate. Out of 100 senators, there's three African-Americans, all men, no African-American women. And um, Tim Scott is a Republican, Cory Booker is a Democrat. So they are the leads over in the Senate.
0: So you basically have to get a number of Republicans to support this bill. You know, Are there any Republicans in the Senate who you think will go behind this bill? Because I could think about Mitt Romney, for example. I don't know, but he seems like somebody that would,
1: I I think so. Tim Scott believes that there are, and I have to trust him.
0: Got it. Got it. So there is this growing call for defund the police. And, you know, that means a lot of things for a lot of people. And you know that there are a lot of folks who campaigned on defund the police. Uh, You know, Jamal Mo Bowman, who's your colleague, rallied voters around that. So what are your thoughts about the defund the police movement, and does any of those uh, people's um, wants uh, are they included in in, in the uh, George Floyd act? So,
1: what defund the police means to me is it's really a cry to refund communities because what started happening about thirty years ago is that we started shredding and dismantling the safety net, health care. Um, uh, mental health care, especially because a lot of police encounters that wind up with people killed or people in mental health crises. Uh, we, as we cut social programs, we expected the police to pick up the pieces. And so to me, I want to refund the communities so that the police aren't needed to solve social problems, <laughs> to solve economic problems, to solve health problems. Uh, that really shouldn't involve policing. Mm -hmm. So that's what what it means to me. The people that support uh, defund the police um, are not happy with with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act because the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act does not defund the police. Um, But you know, we work together, we work together. We do know that there's some significant reforms that will come from this bill. And so they are supportive of that, but would like to see the bill go much further. But that's very common. I mean, it's very rare that there's a piece of legislation that everybody's in love with. So it's incremental change. I would like to see massive change. I don't think the bill goes far enough, but I do believe it's what we can accomplish at this point in time.
0: Right. So it's, it's about incremental steps. I definitely get that. And so, you know, one thing that we don't associate with Black people in this country is immigration. And black people, particularly when it comes to ICE, um, we're you know we're, we're highly impacted by a number of rests uh, because, as you know, uh, a lot of black folks they deal with the profiling first of all, and when it comes that if people are found to be undocumented, you know, then they are pushed into the ICE system. We have often looked at immigration from the perspective of our brothers and sisters who come south of the border, but uh, you are very passionate about highlighting how um, immigration in regards to the injustices of how Black people are treated within the immigration system, you know, are prevalent. And so I just wanted you to share your thoughts about your efforts in that area.
1: Well, well, two things. I mean, it, it is just a part of, of racism in the United States to be concerned about immigration now because we were not concerned about immigration when they were white Europeans coming over. As a matter of fact, one of the programs that was set up, diversity visas, was set up to to make sure that Irish Americans could come to the United States. But the minute the program shifted over and it became the primary vehicle in which Africans and Asians come to the United States, then people want to eliminate diversity visas. In the United States, we act as though we only have one border, We only talk about the border on the south. We never talk about the border to the north. The majority of the people that are here illegally did not come across the border illegally. They came, they flew in, they came in a variety of ways and they overstayed their visa, which put them in illegal Mm -hmm. status. And so you can't, in this moment in our history, extract race from immigration. So, I'm concerned about immigration, period. And I'm concerned about Black immigrants because Black immigrants are not considered. And right now, we have a huge issue with African immigrants who literally fly from the continent to Ecuador and walk from Ecuador to Mexico.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, I, I need to take a break.
0: Okay, no problem
1: i need to go vote and i should be back in like
0: 10 minutes no 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 problem congresswoman you can go ahead and vote and we will be waiting for you no that's no problem congresswoman i'm I'm just curious so we're welcome uh welcoming congresswoman karen bass back to the show and you had to step (laughs) out and go vote that's just so cool in the middle of a show you have to say i gotta go vote (laughs) By the way, what bill were you voting on?
1: Oh, well, we're voting on a bill around wilderness. So, and, you know, really to reverse and to protect the open uh, spaces, the natural part, the national parks in the country, you know, so much damage was done under President Biden. I mean, I'm sorry, President uh, Trump. Um, Just in terms of wanting to either give away the national parks, open it up to drilling, you know, all of that. And so uh, I was just defeating an amendment um, put forward by one of the conservative members that want to maintain where the Trump administration is coming from.
0: Okay, good. Well, thank you very much. That was a very good reason to take a break. So <laughs> I, um, yeah, mo- most definitely. So we, hey, listen, we're all grateful to you about that. What I am really curious about is how someone likes you who started off in the sta- in the state legislature in California becomes a foreign policy expert like yourself, because I interview a lot of folks who are running at the local level and then they decide that they want to run national and they often don't have these experience or the knowledge to talk in any real depth about foreign policy so it would be interesting for me to know how did you become interested and foreign affairs. What is it about your district that, that that you represent? You know, is it something about your district? You know, please tell us about your district. Maybe that has something to do with it as well?
1: No, no, it doesn't. I mean, I um, have been interested in foreign policy since childhood, uh, and I've been interested in politics since childhood. It just never occurred to me to uh, that someone would pay me for my interest. <laughs> okay. So for example, I mean, I grew up during the Vietnam War, during all the liberation struggles around the world. Um, you know, I traveled at a, at, a, at a young age, so I've always been interested in the world. Where'd you
0: travel to at a young age? We do, I want to know about this. And where are you from?
1: Yeah, Los Angeles, California. <laughs> well, I graduated high school on Thursday, and on Monday, I went to Europe. Uh, yeah, I had never been on an airplane before, never traveled anywhere. I went to Europe, um I that was the, you know, the time people were traveling in your, your rail um and hitchhiking through, you know, the hitchhiking through Europe when a lot of people were doing that. I was always interested in the world and growing up with the civil rights movement, the Panther Party, the Vietnam War, the um, the struggles in Africa, all of that shaped my childhood. And I was active in the anti-apartheid movements, the movements um, in Southern Africa. I ran an anti-apartheid organization. Uh, so I actually shifted and focused on domestic policy in the 1980s when the crack cocaine crisis hit. And uh, here I was working the Free Nelson Mandela, a country, South Africa, that I had never been to and never imagined I'd be able to go to. And then the very community I was living in was falling apart because
0: laws were... Tell us about that South Africa trip, Fritz. I, I definitely want to talk about, you know, the crack era. I, we definitely want to get into that, but tell us about South Africa.
1: Well, I never went to, I mean, I went to South Africa when I was a member of Congress. In the last 10 years, gotcha. okay, I'm... I never had an opportunity to gotcha. go to South Africa during, well, during the anti-apartheid movement, of course, we weren't going to go because we were all boycotting South
0: Africa. Right, right, right.
1: But, uh, and I wasn't going to be an honorary white person to go, which is the only way you could go during those years.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> but, um, but I was, you know, there was a broad movement to get U.S. Um, U.S. universities city governments, state governments to divest, to stop doing business with companies that did business in South Africa. Um, So I was a part of that movement. Uh, I saw, I identified with that movement because to me it was the greater movement against racism around the world. Uh, So I identified with all of that. It was that I stopped working on foreign policy issues and focused on domestic policy when it was obvious that mass incarceration was going to be the outcome of the way we were approaching a health epidemic which was the epidemic of crack cocaine addiction right now there's another epidemic with opioids and it's primarily affecting white people and nobody's talking about locking everybody up
0: you're talking about those days when the apartheid period that you know Ronald reagan during the 80s was president and i i'm i'm 40 years old and um So I remember I was a child during the 80s, obviously, but I know growing up in Detroit, Michigan, I know how this epidemic impacted my own family. But the person who was really um, in charge during that time was, you know, former governor of California and um, went on to become president. So can you just talk about what it was like being in California, knowing who Ronald Reagan was, and then he went on to become president? And how his whole, you know, he had interest in foreign policy itself, but also he had devastating a domestic (laughs) agenda here.
1: Well, his his foreign policy at the time was called constructive engagement. And that was what he wanted to, to, uh, that was the way he addressed apartheid. We should constructively engage and maybe they'll change. That's the same crap they said during the civil rights movement. Well, we shouldn't get rid of Jim Crow. People will change over time. Mm. So, you know, his yeah. foreign policies were bad. His domestic policies were bad. He came in saying that he wanted to get rid of welfare queens, which was just, you know, code language for black women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when he died, I will tell you, uh, because he's kind of deified and when he when he died, um, they spent a week talking about him, and I'm like, I have no idea who this man is they're talking about, because that's that's not the Ronald Reagan we lived under in California, and that's not the Ronald Reagan who was president. Now I will tell you though, everything's relative, because if Ronald Reagan was alive today, he wouldn't even be accepted in the Republican Party. Why do you say that? Well, because he was too liberal. Way too liberal. He wouldn't be accepted in the Republican Party at all.
0: Explain that.
1: So his, his policies, he raised taxes. He uh, did not oppose abortion. Um, there were many, many things that he did that in today's Republican Party that has become radicalized so far to the right that Ronald Reagan would definitely not be a Republican today.
0: Wow, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. It, it's de- it definitely is relative, right? I mean, because you know, it's basically it, there is a such thing as a worse. Right. What would your advice be for someone who's a state, uh, assim- like a like an assembly person, who like yourself, uh, because you you started off with foreign policy. I think that's interesting because I, what I find is that most people they they're they're good at something at a domestic level, and then they have to expand into foreign policy yours is reversed that's very uncommon
1: yes but you know again I never thought about politics from the point of view of a job or a career so you know my focus on um, foreign policy again was on a community level and uh and then you know you can educate yourself you don't always have to have uh, a job or a degree to have an interest
0: yeah most definitely and so you talk about the Vietnam War and, you know, the anti-war, um, you know, campaigns. I spoke with Congresswoman Barbara Lee a few weeks ago. You, As you know, she's very passionate about nuclear nonproliferation. And she's very passionate about cutting 10% from the Pentagon. And one of the things that she told me was that A lot of the money that we spend on the military ought to be reallocated to the State Department, and so I'm curious, what are your thoughts about her efforts? You know, uh, about this whole idea of reallocating money from the Pentagon to the State Department, um, you know, you know, and and bolstering diplomacy.
1: Well, I mean, I, I well, first of all, of course, I agree with it but the reality is is that the, the defense industry i mean we we've monetized just about everything under the sun in this country and so you know you're you're fighting industries yeah <laughs> you're fighting industries and so i remember when i first came to congress um we were protesting the fact that the military, the U.S. government gave the military $150 million to advertise and promote various branches at NASCAR. Mm. So I'm talking about the signage on the side of the cars and billboards and all of that. At the point that, that representative Lee makes that I agree with hundred percent is that we allocate money incorrectly for a lot of different things. So For example, why do we have an achievement gap? Why do we have health disparities? This is the richest country in the history of the world, but we've also monetized poverty. (laughs) People make an awful lot of money off of poor people too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is part of the issue. So when she is saying take money from the Pentagon and put it in the State Department, she is basically saying our focus should be on diplomacy and not on war. The problem is, is that war is an industry. So, you know, there, there have been times here where I've seen members push certain weapons that the military doesn't even want. Right. And the military will tell you, we are not going to use them. But the members want the, the, um, the equipment because it's jobs in their district, as opposed to saying, can't we have jobs to rebuild our roads? And I'm talking about roads in Africa. We need to rebuild roads here. I mean, (laughs) Texas, (laughs) people people froze to death in Texas because they wouldn't pay attention to the electrical grid. So, you know, we have our own issues that we don't pay attention to because um, one party has spent three decades demonizing government. I mean, that's what Ronald Reagan said in his inaugural speech, The problem was government. And so if you cut the funding from government and then you wonder why the bridge fell down, well, don't be surprised. So it's not just the Pentagon to the State Department. This is a pervasive problem in every part of our country. Why do we have, in my city uh, and county, why do we have 60,000 people a night sleeping on the street? This is the United States of America. We can't figure out how to house and feed and clothe our own population. It's a question of political will. And we don't have it in some areas.
0: My last question, because I um you I know you have to go, but I, I really this is one I'm really burning with uh with the defense spending. When I talk to a lot of Congress people about defense, first, just in my job as a reporter and I actually study it as a specialty, a lot of people don't understand it. I really think that there are a lot of people, particularly when it comes to defense spending, they don't understand what they're signing or what they're reading. And that's not really to you know, speak negatively about them. But when they talk about this idea of jobs, my, whole, my first response is, well, can't you come up with another way to create a job besides creating a weapon of war that we don't need? So so, 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 but, what, but what, what's your, these are your, co- some of these are, people are your colleagues. Right. What are the conversations that you have with them about, about, hey, you, maybe you, you're thinking about this type of job creation. What about this? What are those conversations like?
1: Well, until they see the jobs of equal pay, they're going to stay where they are now. So we actually need to rebuild America.
0: But that's their job though, Congressman. That's yeah. their job to create yeah. them though.
1: But you understand what I'm saying. If, if you have a, a plant that's in your district right now that's building planes and you say you want to shut that plane, plant down, what I think you should do is you put the jobs in place first. Right. And then talk about it. It's like we have this discussion over coal. Now, I know from coming from California where we went and, and were involved in renewables and reducing our greenhouse gas footprint many, many years ago, I know that that created tons of jobs, billions of dollars, new businesses, but instead of telling people in coal country that coal needs to go away, why don't we build sustainable uh, businesses there, green businesses now, before we close the coal plant? Because if people don't see those jobs, why are they gonna go for that? We've, We've made those promises so many times. I mean, for example, I mentioned the 60,000 people a night that are sleeping on the streets in Los Angeles County, 60,000 people, okay, in one county sleeping on the street. Well, Ronald Reagan during his time said, let's get rid of the big middle institutions. We're going to build community-based clinics to take care of people. And guess what? We shut down the hospitals and never built The clinics Mm. so why should the people that work in the coal industry believe that Mm. you're going to shut down their coal mine and you're going to put in new jobs put the new jobs in first
0: no that listen that totally makes sense congresswoman bass thank you so much for taking time to talk to us you were you took time to you voted took a break came back we're grateful for your knowledge, your expertise, and your service. Thank you so much, ma'am.
1: Well, you're very welcome. So, are you going to come back from the Ukraine and join the State Department as one of our mid-level people?
0: <laughs> you know, that's a that's interesting. I've always thought about serving, and that's a that's a ever-evolving question. And I say this because one of your I'm in con, one, I'm I'm good. I have a good relationship with one of your colleagues. I'm not going to say who. But this person is like kind of encouraging me to think about public service. And, you know, she is slowly um, encouraging me and um, really pulling me along. So I don't know. Keep asking me. Who who knows?
1: (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to pass this bill and then we're going to come get you.
0: (laughs) Thanks a lot for listening. Please support the podcast by going on your favorite platforms, including Spotify and iTunes and giving us a five star rating and go on to Patreon, search for black diplomats podcast and donate what you can talk to you next week.